Hello and welcome to What the Hegma podcast with your host Hegma the Bukhater. In this podcast, I'll be diving deep into questions on geopolitics, culture, and the everyday American dream. I'll be doing so from my unique perspective as a Syrian-American immigrant. To help me examine these topics, I'll be inviting experts on the matter to weigh in. Two things brought about the launch of this podcast. First, my parents have recently become U.S. citizens. And second, I have just passed my seventh year living in the United States. I feel, thus far, that my relationship towards my second home is changing. I am no longer an observer, but an active participant in the American experience. An experience that constantly has me asking, what the heck? Welcome to episode three of What the Heck Map podcast where we're joined today by one of my former CEOs and mentors, and not to mention a pioneer in her own field, Amy Nelson. Amy Nelson has worked with numerous foundations that have taken her from Cambodia, where she worked with the Cambodia Children's Fund, to Venture for America, where she expanded the reach and redefined the ecosystem of entrepreneurship, and now to Rethink Capital, where she's exploring the gaps in capital markets and working to fill them in an effort to build towards a better future. Amy, it's a pleasure to have you on the What the Heck Map podcast, episode number three. Um, you have had, obviously, a great influence on me. <clears throat> My introduction to the workforce has been through joining VFA, and uh, you, welcomed me, you welcomed me into this world. So uh, thank you again for being with us. And uh, what did I miss about your introduction? What do you want to tell? <laughs> well, no, that was all very flattering. <laughs> And, you know, I, um, I take no credit for any of your successes, but I am glad to be a part of your journey. Awesome. So, Amy, before we jump in, before I start with my questions, you had an interesting trip uh, career-wise. You've, uh, first of all, you're, you're a Midwesterner, and yep. uh, you came from uh, uh, St. Louis, all yep. the way down to Cambodia, to Los Angeles, to NYC. Uh, take us through that journey, uh, how it uh, and, and how it reflected on your career. Yeah, I grew up in a very small town of about nine thousand people, um, outside of St. Louis, Missouri, mostly cornfields and dairy cows. <laughs> um, and I was very ambitious, and it was not, I would say, a high expectation environment. And so I basically just said to myself, how can I get as far away from St. Louis, Missouri as humanly possible? Um, California seemed like a fun place. So that is where I went to college. Um, only applied to one school. I had no idea what I was doing. I was a first generation college student. Um, fortunately landed in a place that was very supportive in Claremont. Um, and after a couple of years there, you know, I really wanted to see the world always had. And so I kind of said, how can I get as far away from the United States as humanly possible? And I studied abroad in Cameroon and then in Paris um, and was going to pursue a Fulbright to go back to Central Africa. Um, and I became pregnant. And so I, I had to get a job instead, but found work in the international development sector and through a couple of machinations ended up running the US office of Cambodian Children's Fund, which is an education NGO that provides sort of residential um, education facilities and other actually much more broad services now for uh, children and families who were historically garbage pickers in, um, in Phnom Penh. 
And after some period of time, I became very disillusioned with the international NGO sector and sort of nonprofits more broadly. And partially just as a white Western woman, wasn't sure what my role really was in those conversations. And also kind of felt like I was on a hamster wheel raising money every year, doing good work. But if our organization went away, um, you know, the, the kids that we worked with would be right back where they started. And so wanted to really find ways to create more sustainable and lasting change and became convinced that you needed, you know, private capital and business efficiencies in order to do that. So I packed up my kids from California, moved to New York to go to business school. I didn't know way to learn about business that seemed right uh, probably other ways I could have done it and I was really interested in the impact investing sector so I worked at B lab they're the B corporation people kind of helped them launch a program for impact investors to understand the social and environmental return on their portfolio and as I was graduating um, I read about venture for America in the New York Times uh, reached out to Andrew Yang and was like I think I can be helpful to you um, and join that organization, you know, really to lead fundraising and growth. Um, and then ultimately, after a couple of years, moved into the number two spot and then took over as CEO. Um, and then my, my last job, I was, I was pretty broad in my approach, but ended up sort of meeting the folks at Rethink Capital Partners. And it made a lot of sense for me to kind of go back to that instinct that I'd had a decade previous around impact investing specifically, um, and I've, I've said that I think if I had followed a more traditional path in finance um, and you know, private market investing, probably wouldn't be able to even be in the position that I'm in now. But because I took the sort of non-traditional route through a high growth organization and, and leading it quite successfully, um, was able to, to finagle my way into a job that I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making it work <laughs> and I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah. No, no, I'm sure you're making it work. I have no doubt in that. Um, so actually, part of your um, your little intro here uh, leads me to my follow-up questions. One, as I've alluded to before, how was your decision process towards getting that MBA and what would you have done differently? What is the purpose and use of an, of an MBA, especially in today's age, with the consideration of the great resignation and the entrepreneurial lifestyle of a young 20-something? Yeah, you know, I, I have deeply mixed feelings because there are things about my experience there and the networks that I've built that have been quite useful to me, mostly personally rather than mm -hmm. professionally, I would say. You know, I met my husband in business school, some of my best friends I, I met there. It allowed me to kind of relocate to New York. Um, but I tend to believe that these schools are oriented around employers and not students. Mm -hmm. um, and so they service really folks who maybe feel like they missed the boat on banking, consulting, brand management at some schools and increasingly sort of executive jobs in big technology firms. Um, but the customer is the employer. And so if you really feel like one of those opportunities is what you want to be doing and you'd like to shift your career toward one of those things, then it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, business school is really expensive, right? The sticker yeah. price for, for a two-year program, even if you, you know, get some financial aid, you're going to be out six figures. Um, most people can't afford that out of pocket. Um, and the people who can already have all the advantages in the world. Um, 
And so that means for, for the majority of people taking on debt. And then at the point that you have that debt, you're shoehorned into taking these sort of fairly highly compensated executive roles in order to service that debt. Um, and there, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what the current administration does around student debt. Um, but I really feel like it constrains your choices. Um, and, and right now there are sort of debt forgiveness programs if you're in public service, but not if you're an entrepreneur. So, you know, the, the amount of risk that one takes in order to start a business, particularly if you don't come from, you know, a, a wealthy family, um, or have some sort of financial cushion is already pretty extreme. And then if you load up debt service that can't really be postponed, um, in the process, then, then it becomes very difficult. And I think it's interesting actually, because there is this great resignation, but even before that, um, when there were mass layoffs, you saw this really interesting spike in 2020 in new business formation. And it wasn't just totally entrepreneurship of necessity. There were really high value businesses coming out of that. And some of it certainly is opportunistic, but at the same time, the government did pause federal student loan payments and something like north of 90% of payers took them up on that, even though if they paid during that period, they would be able to pay down principal. And certainly 90% of, of workers, you know, were not laid off or even financially impacted that significantly. In fact, many of them probably are making more money, um, but chose not to make those payments because they could use that money in other ways. And I, I think it's quite likely that that um, had something to do with the rise in new business formation. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my take. <laughs> Does that answer yeah. your question? And I mean, uh, a lot of the points you make, I'm kind of thinking in the back of my mind, there's this recent report that came out of the Wharton school at, uh, at UPenn and it shows you a survey. They ask their students, their MBA students, what they think the average salary is. And mm -hmm. you had people posting ridiculous salary numbers, like 800,000 dollars a year yeah I, I wonder if that person just like it was a typo um because that's such an absurd figure yeah. um but yeah but even the average them... the average was in the hundreds and yeah. it shows you that these people going to business school are they reflective of the the everyday american entrepreneur in today's age and nine percent we look at the data, it's 9% of uh, folks who are starting businesses have gone through and, and gotten their MBA. So at the end of the day, for someone my age, for people in my cohort with VFA, uh, when they're considering their options after their fellowship has expired and, and, and ended, um, obviously we can stay with our jobs, we can stay in our cities, but when we consider uh, an MBA, what we're looking at is we're looking for that network mainly because mm -hmm. a lot of us have taken some of these business courses. We know how to do accounting one-on-one. But um, we're looking at that network or we're considering that listserv that comes in bi-weekly into our emails <clears throat> that says like, hey, alumni of Harvard Business School, th these are some interesting opportunities and interesting people you could watch or you can interact with. So in your opinion, having gone through that process, is there any alternative for going through the entire yeah, I, there, I mean, there's a lot of startups, you know, I think on deck is one of them, but there's also, you know, things like degreed and, and other sort of learning and development for professional workers mm -hmm. that are, are largely paid by employers. Um, 
that I think provide really meaningful alternatives to these incredibly expensive. The greed is in the portfolio program. for rethink, right? They are, yeah. Awesome. And you know, and they're not entirely focused on on the top tier of workers, nor, yeah. nor should they be. But these sorts of alternatives, I think, are going to be lower cost to individuals and potentially more meaningful. You know, there's challenges around making sure that that credential means something. But as an entrepreneur, I think that that's less relevant than, again, if you're trying to signal to an employer who's looking for a very sort of narrow phenotype of of what they want to hire. and, you know, obviously there are also tremendous programs, whether it's Techstars or Y Combinator or, you know, any number of business accelerators that are going to provide really meaningful networks that are going to be much more specific to your business than a random sampling of, you know, fellow graduates of various prestigious institutions, which is not to say that there's no value in those networks. I think, yeah. you know, there certainly can be, um, but it's not the only path. Um, and if you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs and billionaires um, and, and centimillionaires over the last couple of decades, and you look at where they went to, to school, I mean, one, most of them don't have MBAs to your point, but they also, most of them did not go to Ivy League institutions, right? It's, it's actually um, a bit of a myth. And so, yes, there's concentration at a small number of schools, but you have tremendous outcomes from people who went to University of the South or Southern Methodist or any number of public institutions, uh, which are, are traditionally lower cost. So, you know, we have a narrative that doesn't, I think, fit the reality of who is creating high value businesses. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. Right now, I'm working with Landing, one of the largest VFA hires in uh, in Birmingham and in in the nation. Um, and Bill Smith, as you probably know, dropped out of high school. <laughs> and uh, look at him now; he's created Shift. He's created created a couple of successful businesses. So yeah, it makes you wonder. Yeah, and I'm not wonder. saying we should all do what Bill did. No, of course um, not. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, he he's certainly. A unique individual, but um, but yes, there there are pathways, and I think that certain people are are built in such a way that going through a traditional program will only constrain them, yep. um, and those people should have options to create the things that that they want to build. Yeah, completely agree. I just wish that we had the resources. I mean, definitely each to their own and each to their own context that they're coming from. For instance, my family pushed me towards uh, medicine, pushed me towards law, safer options just as an immigrant family. But um, yeah, everyone has their own context and they need to figure that out for themselves is what, what I think. You know, you have a, you have to oh, have- My a, mother definitely doesn't understand what I do. Um, <laughs> she came to a, an entire presentation that I did for high school students on- yeah on VFA and still afterwards was like, Amy, I am so proud of you, but like, what is your job really? <laughs> so, so you know, it's, it's, it's very obscure actually what we do. Like she's a nurse and she understands what that means. Um, and, and a lot of this stuff, particularly in, in technology or business services is opaque and, and not relatable. For Completely many. agree. It, it's, it's so funny. You, you find some people in the Arab community that are around me and they have, they have made it big, you know, they either, you know, came out with a fund for their startup, or they have uh, become successful in some way or another. Uh, But you find their parents still interested in potentially pursuing that 
safer career just so they can speak about it when they're in yeah. church when they're in the mosque and they're like oh you know my son is a successful uh, lawyer he has his own firm for 30 years <laughs> just so he can, they can expand upon it to their networks yeah. in turn so yeah honest conversation with yourself we've established that <laughs> um okay so moving on amy um so you you alluded to your uh, your time at Venture for America. Of course, now you're re- with uh, Rethink Capital. But real quick, as an aside here, how was your experience um, uh, leading the charge, taking the baton from uh, Andrew Yang um, as such a during such a not a during such a complex time to be doing doing the the work that venture for america was trying to do so how was your experience and how uh, how was the transition for you becoming from second to first yeah um you know there were certainly things that i learned in terms of management of people but you know we we did a lot of things right one of them was putting together a strategic plan that had really high buy in from the community from you know the board donors and obviously the team um, and then really really sticking with it so i'm i'm really proud of all that we accomplished in that time um, and in particular you know 2020 i think was a, a tough year for everyone but the way that we navigated the you know the pandemic and the switch to virtual and then the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in a way that really respected and honored the community um, are things that I will always take with me and so you know that VFA uh, people are my ride or dies and and that will be the case forever. Yeah, I mean obviously today you just you picked up in my email and you agreed to do this podcast. So, uh, yeah, we appreciate you sticking with the community uh, even after you've left. So a follow-up question on that is um, within the VFA community, uh, when you were, when my class came in, uh, it was majority minority community. It was a majority woman community. Um, What was the the reasoning behind that push that you took uh, when you spearheaded uh, the selection process for the VFA class. And um, yeah, yeah. talk to that. And then I have a follow-up question. Well, part of it was just, it's the right thing to do, right? And, and there are, as we talked about earlier, there are only so many people who have easy access to entrepreneurship. So if you're only elevating people who might have already had that access anyway, mm-hmm. um, or who you know look like the people who came before them, then you haven't done anything unique um, or with, within my opinion, sort of meaningful social impact. And, and that's the way that I'm oriented. And so given that we know that less than 2% of venture capital goes to women, less than 2% goes to black founders. How can we create a community that will help set people up for success to go down that path? And so it was really an intentional effort to make sure that as a nonprofit organization that had an explicit social mission, we were putting our thumb on the scale in favor of what we wanted to be true about entrepreneurship in the future. Um, The other piece of it was that's really important is that that's, you know, we wanted to be representative of the generation, right? Like our country is going to be majority minority. And if you look at, you know, Gen Z in particular, they're, they're obviously the most diverse generation in our nation's history, you know, and obviously the generation coming after, which a couple of my kids are part of. 
will be even more so. Um, and so how can you possibly be identifying talent from that set that isn't diverse um, and expect to get the best people? That just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the communities that Venture for America was operating in, the, the majority of those were uh, majority black or you know, a couple are majority Latinx. And it was, it was really sort of disconsonant if we were only working with uh, primarily white students. Um, so it was a number of factors. And, and for me, it was the thing that I knew in taking over that the organization that I wanted to be the clearest shift uh, from how we thought about things previously, which wasn't, you know, obviously a negative view toward diversity. It just wasn't um, as much a part of the equation. And it had been a growing conversation amongst the team and, and the fellows for years. And so it was just time to be definitive about it. Yeah, that uh, that brings me to my follow-up here. Because from what I'm seeing in both Venture for America and um, companies and funds like uh, Rethink Capital, it, it makes me wonder, it makes me ponder this question that we've seen the data, 42% of uh, businesses and uh, entrepreneurial enterprises that are trying to kick off the reason they fail fail 42 percent of the time is just because they didn't have a market fit and they didn't have they didn't have a reason to exist in the first place so i'm wondering how does how do companies like venture for america how do fellowships like uh venture for america how do um uh, institutions like rethink capital make sure that they're matching the progress of the entire nation and they're not just like beating just ahead and creating companies that the entire community that they're trying to serve or the entire ecosystem that they're trying to jump into is not ready to receive them yet. And just as, yeah. a, as a follow-up, like I understand also wanting to, to mold the shoe to fit in, but um, how do you make sure you're not just going ahead of yourself and, uh, building spaces that are not ready to be occupied? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And I think VFA is different than a traditional venture firm because we mm. were really in the talent development business mm. and we were much more interested in the individual as opposed to the business model. Um, and we were, we were backing people who we believed in um, and venture capitalists do the same, but they also need to be very high conviction about the business. And so I think the way that, you know, when I was at VFA, we sort of compensated for that was really around our sprint model and um, the validation challenge to, to really focus on whether or not you have a product that meets a need in the market and to like interview customers and to, to run small tests and to, you know, be as lean as humanly possible with capital until you feel like you've hit product market fit. Um, I think a lot of times companies hit sort of problem market fit. Yeah. <laughs> like they've identified a real problem, but their solution isn't, um, clear, isn't, yeah. or isn't the right one. Mm. And so feedback from customers is always number one. And I think that that was a big part of the curriculum at Venture for America. You know, in venture capital, it's, it's very different because, you know, you're talking to someone who already has a business. Um, and Rethink in particular, you know, we're, we're primarily sort of East Coast investors. And I think that there's a different philosophy than some of our counterparts in Silicon Valley. 
um, where we really do look for strong early traction, even at the seed stage. Um, we want companies to be maybe it's 300,000 to a million in revenue before we come in on a seed round. And, and there are exceptions to that, right? There are always going to be times where pre-product, pre-revenue business is sufficiently interesting um, that putting a flyer on it, it you know, makes sense. Not a huge amount of capital, right? But but yeah. something just to sort of test. And, you know, what what I've seen with, with our um, portfolio, and I'm still new, is you know, we have a, we don't have a lot of companies that have gone to zero, which I think is, is a point of pride. You know, we're not the kind of firm that just sort of sprays and prays um, mm -hmm. and doesn't care if, if companies fail, because we are looking for a number, a handful of outliers. Obviously we want those unicorn success stories um, and we'll put energy behind it. But, you know, there's also a number of, you know, very solid businesses that are going to have great outcomes on top of that um, and on top of those handful of runaway successes. And, and that was part of the philosophy of the firm that really attracted me. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. The, the one point that I had in mind, and now you've, you've shown some light on it, is that in, in fellowships like Venture for America, the, the fellows are sold a bill of goods that, um, you know, of course, they're told that you've gone through this very strenuous application process, very selective, something like less, like less than 3% of folks are getting accepted to the fellowship in the first place. And then once they're there, their anticipation, their expectation is not necessarily uh, followed through because they expect, you know, they're in, they made it. Next, next step is just to start your own business and just jump in. Um, and I guess something that I would hope that you can expand upon for people diving into entrepreneurship in the 21st century, in the second decade of the 21st century, is that it's, it is difficult. It's still difficult. There's entrepreneurship is incredibly hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I saw a tweet the other day that was like, you know, it's never been easier to raise money and it's still very hard to raise money. Yeah. Um, and raising money shouldn't be your barometer of success as an entrepreneur in, in my opinion. Um, but it, it was something that I remember having a lot of conversations about, like making sure we were continuing to signpost just how difficult the entrepreneurial yeah. journey is. Whether or not a young person chooses to listen to that is something else, right? And I think that there are sort of like logical fallacies that people tend to fall into, like that's true for everyone else, but not me. Um, <laughs> And there's, there's no way to learn that lesson, in my opinion, other than to go through it, even if you sort of intellectually know certain things to be true. Um, and failure is our greatest teacher. So if things were easy, uh, success would not be nearly as sweet, right? And you know, it's, it's a competitive landscape in, in any industry, but in entrepreneurship, at least you know that you're accountable to yourself, right? Did I make a product that the world is interested in as opposed to, you know, compensation structures and larger institutions that can be fairly arbitrary. <laughs> um, you, are, you are truly compensated for the value that the marketplace is on the product that you've created. Speaking of the marketplace, my last question here, um, where do you see the flow of capital flow, uh, going towards 
especially now after we've uh, seen the post-world COVID, co- post-COVID world starting to form take place, um, how is that going to Im- impact entrepreneurship? In terms of industry, uh, you know, it's an interesting time, right? Because a lot of the, there were, you know, more IPOs than ever by a wide margin last year. A lot of those companies are not doing well. I think there will be some blowback into the private markets inevitably as a result, even though venture capital as a sector has, you know, had the highest returns of of any segment. Um, That being said, I am particularly, and this is me as an individual, really bullish on some of the like sort of hardware tech um, in the clean tech space. I think that there's going to be a lot of innovation. I think the pressures on the supply chain right now are going to lead to innovation and in how we move goods um, around the world because there's there's just so much <laughs> um, that logistics have frankly just not modernized, right? And, and we're, we're feeling that strain um, in this moment. I, I think that, you know, Healthcare had a big year last year and there will be innovations, but I think there's going to be a lot that kind of wipes out as well um, because we really haven't figured out how to drive down costs um, either in sort of traditional medicine or in, in mental health, which is a very active space right now. Um, but, you know, I, I also tend to believe that something that was a good idea before the pandemic probably remains a good idea now and execution is like 99% of, of success. Um, you know, I don't want to talk about web three because I don't know enough about it, but certainly it's worth keeping an eye on. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit educated, but I think we're at least a decade away from those technologies, you know, being really meaningful to the average person. Um, and we were, we were sold a bill of goods about, AI, particularly driverless vehicles a decade ago that still hasn't manifested. Um, so we've got a long way on, on some of these things. Okay. Well, Amy, I hope you enjoy your, uh, your time, your, your life in a recovering New York City. Uh, I know you, you love museums. You love the shows. Final question here. What's the next show you're going to go see? Once, Ooh, uh, that is a really finally. good question. I have, I've only been to the movies once and I haven't seen, um, any live theater, but I've, I've heard the, the new Music Man is really good. I don't know. I was I was in the chorus in the Music Man in high school, so maybe it would be fun. Of course you were. <laughs> I have a baby, so going to a show right now seems... Might be tough, yeah. Seems like a lot. Uh, if I make it, you know, to dinner around the corner with a friend, that's a victory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I hope to see you in Birmingham or see you in New York sometime soon. And uh, again, I want to thank you for your generosity with your time. And uh, I wish you the best with Rethink Capital. You're welcome. Thank you. It's fun.